1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 to 15. Family. Family is the context where love, care, support, and encouragement is to be lived out among the people. It is to be evident before people. Now we know that since sin has entered the world, sin has impacted and ruined everything. It has also impacted families in such a way that families don't always function properly. Instead, we have dysfunctional families. We see it in Scripture. Think about Cain, how he murdered his brother Abel. Think about Joseph and his brothers, how they hated on him. We don't, also, we, all, we don't only have to look to Scripture. Some of us know this from experience with our very own lives. That where sin reigns, it always destroys, and that includes the family. So we see dysfunction. Parents abuse their children. Children disrespect their parents. Siblings have contempt towards one another. And when you see it, it is quite jarring. And those who witness it know that it is not supposed to be this way. In fact, when you see it, you want to get as far away from it as possible. But when you see in God's kindness a family function well as a family, as God intends, where there is love and care and support and encouragement, a togetherness, when you witness that, for people who see it, it is like what honey is to a bee. It is attractive. It draws you in. You want to be a part of it. It is exemplary in such a way that you want your family to look like that. Beloved, if that is true in biological families, it is certainly all the more true in the family of faith, the community of the redeemed. As we sung in genuine love, God has made us who have trusted in Christ a family. To where we are to genuinely love one another and care well and support each other. How we live actually matters. In the household of God, there's to be unity, encouragement, care, and love. And it is otherworldly, so much so that when unbelievers in the world see it, it is attractive to them. Beloved, if we're going to live like this, as God calls us to, then we must walk according to his instruction that he gives us. And in this morning's passage, we see Paul instruct the congregation on how they are to live together. So if you're able to, please stand for the reading of God's word. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 to 15. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to re- give recognition, re- recognition, my bad, to give recognition to those who labor among you and lead you in the Lord and admonish you, and to regard them very highly in love because of their work. 
Be at peace among yourselves. See to it that no one repays evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good for one another and for everyone. Oh, my bad. I missed verse 14. (laughs) Let me exhort you, brothers. Warn those who are idle. Comfort the discouraged. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. See to it that no one repays evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good for one another and for all. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Our big idea for this morning's passage is this. Walk in love towards your elders and fellow church members. Walk in love towards your elders and fellow church members. And from this passage, we have two exhortations. First is commend your elders. Second, care for one another. Commend your elders and care for one another. We begin here. This is the concluding section of Paul's letter to the Thessalonians. And though... The letter is ending. Paul is not done exhorting. In fact, between verses 12 to 28, there's roughly about 20 exhortations that Paul gives this congregation. And the first few, which is our passage this morning, he focuses on how the church is to live together. Specifically, how the congregation is to relate to their elders and to one another. And first, the exhortation is to commend your elders. Look at verse 12. It says, Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to give recognition to those who labor among you and lead you in the Lord and admonish you. Here Paul instructs the congregation to honor their church leaders. It was Paul's custom with him being an apostle. Wherever he took the gospel, where he preached by God's grace, people would repent and believe. He would gather them together to be a church, and he would appoint elders who would be leaders of the church. They were under shepherds, and Jesus himself is the chief shepherd. He has obtained the church with his blood, and though he has ascended on high, he has not left his congregations without leadership. Elders are biblically qualified men who serve as overseers and under-shepherds. And in this passage, the title of elder is not in it. Paul is very silent on the office, but he expounds on the work. They labor among you, they lead you in the Lord, and admonish you. And as you read the pastoral epistles, Timothy, 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus, you will see that this is the work of elders. Paul tells them to give recognition to these men, to acknowledge, respect, and commend them, not merely for their title, because of their work. The work is hard. It is important for us to know, when he talks about laboring among and leading and admonishing, 
This isn't three different elders each individually doing one of those things. Instead, it is the work of the elder to do all of them. Beloved, ministry is a strenuous spiritual work. The elders are to labor for the benefit and spiritual good for the congregation. And did you notice the context by which the elders are to work? The first thing he says is they are to labor among you. Ministry done well is not done from afar, but up close. This is the reason why the office of elder is to be described. The reason why the office of elder is described as a work of shepherding. Just as shepherds are among the sheep, so the elders are to be among the flock. Elders are to do the very same work of shepherding for the congregation. We are to smell like the sheep. As a dear brother and pastor in Arizona would say that he describes the work of elders. He says that we are to lead, feed, protect, and care. Paul says that we are to labor among the congregation. This means that elders are to know the flock personally, how they are doing, and to be with them, both publicly in the corporate gathering and also personally as Paul ministered from house to house as he talks about in Acts chapter 20. And our labor is always, always, always for the spiritual good and edification of the congregation. And so we are to labor among you, and then he also says that we are to lead you in the Lord. This is exercising spiritual oversight, where the elders are to lead and tend to and care well for the souls that have been entrusted to them. As under-shepherds, our responsibility is to reflect and point to the chief shepherd, none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. We're to do this in our teaching, in our applying, and in our conduct, guiding the flock of God in the direction that Christ gives. And the primary way that we're to do this is through the public ministry of the word. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17 says it this way, the elders who are good leaders are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard at preaching and teaching. As elders, our responsibility is the public ministry of the word, where we preach, teach, apply, and model scripture. And this leadership, it is a real authority and is to be used to serve the congregation. It should result in the congregation being refreshed and blessed. 2 Samuel chapter 23, verses 3 and 4 says it this way. The one who rules the people with justice, who rules in the fear of God, is like the morning light when the sun rises on a cloudless morning, the glisten of rain on sprouting grass. The congregation is to be blessed and refreshed by the leadership of their elders. Now we know very recently there have been numerous cases where we hear of pastoral abuse. It's extremely unfortunate and extremely sad. The reality is scripture not only defines the work that elders are to do, it also clearly communicates how 
elders are to shepherd. First Peter 5 is to say that, First Peter 5 says that we don't shepherd domineering. Instead, we're to be an example. We're to do it with humility, reflecting the humility of Jesus. As Jesus spoke to his disciples in Mark chapter 10, where he says, those who labor among you, they're like tyrants. He says, that should not be a description of your leadership. He uses himself an example where he says, for even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Beloved, our leadership should reflect the leadership of Jesus. Now, spiritual abuse is certainly possible. Oftentimes, it is the case when the pastoral qualifications in Scripture are ignored. It happens when churches give, rather than giving allegiance to Jesus, they have given it to a man, to a pastor, to their church. It happens all the more when people prioritize giftedness over godliness, charisma over character. Beloved, the reality is we can so easily fall prey to that very same thing. So may we pray for our leaders. Pray for your elders. Paul says that we're to labor among you. We lead you in the Lord and we are to admonish you. Now, pastoral ministry is a real joy. The work is hard, but not all of it is fun. But all of it is necessary. He says that we are to admonish. This requires correcting and warning fellow church members. They're either ensnared in sin, flirting with temptation, or straying morally and doctrinally. Now, this admonishment is to never be done with harshness. It is to be done in love out of a concern for the congregation. It's where we are to confront the brother or sister in love to call them back to the Jesus who they profess to love and obey. Because the Jesus who you profess to love, the Jesus who you profess to be your Lord and Savior, you are not currently following him. And so we call you back in love out of a compassion and a concern for your soul. It is very common for adults to go to the doctor to get a checkup. And as you go and do this annual examination or annual checkup, the doctors and the assistants, they would do an annual examination of your body. They'd check your health. I mean, they'd check your height, your weight, your eyes, your blood pressure, your heartbeat. Your blood sugar levels. They'll ask specific questions about your eating and exercise habits. And depending upon the results of the examination, they may give a prescription, prescribing some sort of vitamins, healthier eating habits, and encouraging you to exercise. But they may also proscribe, meaning they will also tell you, you need to stop doing some things. If you're smoking, hey, man, you're destroying your body, your lungs. You're eating too much sugar. Your blood sugar levels are rising. You need to stop doing this for the sake of your health. Beloved, as elders, we're to be spiritual physicians. Our prescription is always the gospel of Jesus Christ and the word of God and the promises of God. 
imploring you to apply these things to your life and trust in Christ. And there are other times where we have to give a proscription. We call you to turn from your sin, your sinful patterns, because what you're doing is you're actually destroying your soul. And we do this not because we hate you, but because we actually love you, because we care for you. A doctor will be bad if they only tell you what you want to hear. If the report is bad and they are silent about it, if they don't tell you that you have high blood pressure, they don't tell you that you're a diabetic, they don't tell you that they felt and saw a lump, and they don't tell you that what you're actually doing is dying and destroying your life. Well, beloved, we wouldn't be faithful elders if we were silent if you were straying morally and doctrinally. Paul says that we would be a people who labor among you, who lead you in the Lord and admonish you. Now, this isn't an exhaustive list, but this is a description of our work. Because we would be a people who also preach, we pray, we teach, we equip. And we do all this out of a love for Jesus and his flock. As Christ told Peter in John chapter 21, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And every time Peter said, yes, Lord, you know I love you, he said, tend to my flock, feed my flock, feed my lambs. A love for Jesus is to be evident in how the elders love and shepherd the congregation. It's to be a real affection. And we labor so that the people of God may be nearer to Jesus. We want you to love him more because he is glorious, for he is worthy, for he has purchased you with his very own blood. We labor that you may follow him closer and be more enamored and in awe of the one who bought you. Our purpose, as Paul talks about in Colossians chapter 1, is to present you mature in Christ. It is with that goal in mind that we work hard, diligently, and labor strenuously for the maturity of the congregation. Paul says that the church is to have some sort of understanding of the hard work that elders engage themselves in. He, he exhorts the congregation to acknowledge and commend the elders for their work. Go verse 13, he says, and to regard them very highly in love because of their work. The church is to have some sort of appreciation towards their elders for the hard work that they do. The reality is, eldering is a weighty work. Life and death hinges upon how we do this work. Souls are at stake. It is so weighty that we will stand before God and give an account for our teaching and our shepherding. And so Paul exhorts the congregation to acknowledge and commend the congregation, to commend their elders for this work. Now, with this exhortation, there are two ditches that churches can fall into. One is to elevate their elders and exalt them in such a way that you worship the ground that they walk on. Beloved, glory and praise and honor is to go to God alone, not man. We are but men. When we die, the message will go on. 
And so may we not exalt our elders, but may, may we also not fall into the ditch of bashing our elders. It seems like this is the one that is more common in our day, where it's very popular to bash and criticize your elders instead of encourage them. Where there's a frequency in chiding them and a rarity in celebrating their faithfulness. Beloved, it is an ungodly thing. It is satanic to be your pastor's biggest critic. Now, I'm not saying that that is the dynamic of our congregation, but that is the culture that we live in today. And if we're not careful, we can find ourselves doing the same thing. Now, I'm not saying that pastors are above critiques because we certainly aren't. In fact, we're actually helped by healthy and godly critiques. But we also need your encouragement. Beloved, the lack of encouragement in pastoral ministry is like driving with a spare tire. You can only go so far and so fast for so long until something needs to change. But where there's encouragement in the ministry, it is like wind in the sails. Where God uses that encouragement to strengthen elders, to aid elders in enduring in their ministry. Beloved, commending your pastors may not be popular, but it is godly. It actually builds up those who are laboring among you and leading you. Now, I want to be clear. This is an uncomfortable word because... I'm your pastor, and I'm pretty much asking you and exhorting you to encourage me. <laughs> but the reality is I'm really not begging for it in and of itself. I'm seeking to encourage obedience to Scripture. And this is why we preach expositional sermons. We've got to walk through every part of the Bible, even the ones that make pastors feel uncomfortable, like telling you guys to encourage your elders. <laughs> Well, love the question for you to consider is how are you doing in actually commending your elders, though? Those who labor faithfully among you. What is your critique to commendation ratio? Are you encouraging more than you're critiquing? How are you doing in lovingly supporting and praying and encouraging those who labor over you and shepherd you, knowing that they will have to give an account? Beloved, as we pray for a culture of encouragement, may we also be diligent to encourage our elders as Paul instructs the church to do. So may we be a people who commend our elders, but may we also be a people who care for one another. Paul transitions to how the church have the responsibility to care for each other. Look at verse 13 once again. He says, he concludes verse 13 with, be at peace among yourselves. This is an exhortation to live in harmony together. And the reason we're to do this is because our God is a God of peace. We were once his enemies, alienated from him, deserving his holy and righteous wrath, and yet in his love. He sent his own son to atone for our sins, to reconcile us to where we have real peace with God. The gospel not only reconciles us to God, but the gospel also reconciles us to one another. 
It is that powerful to bring the dead to life, to unite sinners to God, and to unite sinners to one another. Beloved, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the great and only unifier. Nothing else will. Not your morality, not your politics, not your sports team. Nothing in this world can reconcile us to God and to one another. Only the good news of Christ and his saving work. God calls us to live in peace also because he has called us to his own kingdom and glory. As a church, we are to be a foretaste of God's coming kingdom. And his kingdom is one of peace. If you guys know me, you know that I absolutely love movies. Like I really do. I'm always down to watch one. Certain ones. <laughs> Had to throw that caveat out. But the thing about watching a movie is that, man, before I watch it, the first thing I want to do is actually watch the trailer. Because the trailer serves as a promo video. It lets you know what's all going to happen in the movie. It gives you little glimpses, causes you to salivate and expect it and have an eager anticipation to watch it, or probably just me. And so, y'all, you already know that when they drop that trailer for Black Panther 2, <laughs> my, 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 <laughs> I watched that mug so many times, I got so hype about it. Man, I, I'm like, for real, I already got my ticket, y'all. <laughs> Going that Friday, Lord willing, really thrilled about it, going to need a sitter. So, <laughs> But for real, I saw that trailer, and y'all, I got so hyped about it. Like, so hyped. The trailer is what did it for me. As it tells me, it gives me some warnings on what's going to happen. Beloved, when God wants to show the world the promo video, of what life in the coming kingdom gonna be like. You know who he uses? He uses his church. The church is to serve as a promo video of what life in the kingdom is to be like. The world is to see our love for one another, our peace, our joy, and when they see it, it is to point people to Jesus and the coming kingdom. Jesus himself prayed about this in John chapter 17. He says, I pray not only for these, but also for those who believe in me through their word. May they all be one. As you, Father, are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. Beloved, the congregation, the local church, we are God's promo video to the world. Our unity is essential it is important. So how we live actually matters. And here Paul says that we are to live at peace among ourselves. Now it's important to know that living at peace among yourselves doesn't mean that you have to agree on everything. The presence of harmony doesn't mean the absence of disagreement, but the absence of division. I'll say that again since my wife told me to. <laughs> the presence of harmony in a church doesn't mean the absence of disagreement, but the absence of division. Beloved, there could be real love and real peace and joy amongst ourselves as long as we are united 
on primary matters, like the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as a local church, as long as we're also united on secondary matters, like baptism and our ecclesiology. But when we elevate tertiary matters, that is where division will begin to take place. We live in an age of polarization where everything, every agenda is raised to the level of first importance. And there's no room for disagreement. And beloved, sadly, Christians begin to adopt that type of perspective. It's where we begin to let our differences on the news that we watch, the candidates that we vote for, thoughts on social justice, views on vaccines, and views on schooling, whether it's public school, home school, private school, or co-op, these differences can easily begin to lead to division in the church. And the temptation is to assume the worst in the other, including your fellow church members. Beloved, this is one of the ways that Satan actually attacks the unity of the church. He seeks to corrode our unity. And if he's effective in this, we would lose our effectiveness. Because a divided church is an unattractive church, an unattractive church. It is no different from the world. It is a poor witness to the saving work of Jesus Christ. The very gospel that has the power to save also has the power to have us live in peace. And Paul says that we are to be at peace with one another. Beloved, if we're going to live in peace, then we must make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And if we're going to do that, then we need to abide in the Word of God so that we're not shaped by CNN, Fox News, or pop culture, but Scripture alone. If we're going to strive to live at peace, then we must resist the temptation to demand agreement on tertiary matters. If we're going to strive to live at peace, then we must truly love one another according to Scripture and hope all things in brothers and sisters who disagree with us. Beloved, where there is unity and peace amidst diversity and differences, it effectively shouts to all of Midtown the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That these people who disagree on a number of things, they, yet they still love each other. The world needs to see that, but it's only found in the church. Paul says, be at peace among yourselves. Notice that this is the responsibility of the congregation. That we work to live at peace together as a people. And beloved, if we're going to do this, then when it comes to maintaining unity and peace, we are to be firefighters, not arsonists. Which means that we ain't stirring up division and, fly, and throwing gas on it trying to see this mug blow up. But instead, we seek to extinguish the differences. We extinguish the divisions with the gospel of Jesus Christ and the word of God. 
that we are laboring so that parties can be reconciled and walk in unity that Christ has purchased. Beloved, how are you doing in laboring for us to live at peace together? Will one describe you more as a firefighter or an arsonist? Paul exhorts us to care for our unity. He also exhorts us to care for one another. Look at verse 14. He says that we exhort you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle, comfort the discouraged, help the weak, be patient with everyone. This is the responsibility of the church, not only the elders. The church has the responsibility to care about each other because we love one another. Let me address the children in here. Children, if you have siblings, you know that your parents encourage you to genuinely love each other, to not be at odds together, to not be dividing, but to actually really tend to and love one another, to look out for each other. And if you, are, you don't have any siblings, your parents also tell you to do this with your friends, your cousins, and others to look out and to care for. It is a display of love. What God commands his church to do that because he has made us a family through Christ Jesus, where we actually look out for each other. Just as brothers and sisters do that, so the church are to do that because we are one another's brothers and sisters in Christ. And our prayer for you is that you would not only be a fellow son or daughter of a specific church member, but that you would be a fellow brother and sister in Christ. That by God's grace through faith, you would join the family of God. And it happens by turning from your sin and trusting in Jesus Christ. And so, friends, this very day, I would encourage you to talk to your parents this morning, this afternoon, about what does it look like to be a part of the family of God and how can you be a part of it? Your parents would love to have that conversation. They're already praying for those conversations. In the passage, Paul tells us to care well for each other. And the reality is, in our church, there will be people who are in different seasons. Some are doing well, others who aren't doing as well. And The season that one is in dictates the type of care that we are to give. At home, I have a tool set in my closet, but I am not a handyman. Not at all. Members will tell you, DJ came when we first moved in and worked on a number of things. I'm not a handyman, but my son thinks that I am. Because I can put some batteries in a toy and change a light bulb. And though I'm not a handyman, I know a little bit about construction. I know that you have a variety of tools and those tools are necessary because they, each tool does a specific type of work. You know, hammers are helpful when you're trying to put a nail in the wall, but they will ruin a wall or ruin other, not a wall, but they will ruin other things if you use it when in fact you need a wrench. The situation or the project dictates the type of tools that you're going to use. And it is the same when it comes to ministry. 
We need various tools in our ministerial tool belt. Not every situation requires a rebuke. There will be times when consoling is necessary, but there will be times where it is unproductive. First thing Paul says is to warn those who are idle. This is those who are unruly. They're physically lazy. These folks have the aptitude to work, but they are unwilling to do so, as we talked about in chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. And Paul speaks very definitively on in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. This isn't only those who are physically lazy, but this could also be people who are spiritually lazy, who are not pursuing the Lord and they are ensnared in sin without even trying to get themselves out of it. The response is to lovingly admonish them and to do this in private because they are disobeying God. They are hurting the body and they are destroying their very own souls. Now, beloved, if we're going to do this well, we have to do this with humility. For none of us are better than all of us have an equal standing at the foot of the cross. All of us are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It's never by works. So may we do it with humility, and may we also be earnest, for it is a serious matter. We're to speak the truth in love. And as you do this, may you be clear and specific as it regards to the idleness. And may you also be biblical in regards to repentance. Now, the three that Paul goes on to talk about, this is likely the most uncomfortable one because it is a hard conversation. And the temptation is silence. But, beloved, silence is unloving. Proverbs chapter 27, verses 5 to 6 says this, An open rebuke is better than hidden love. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. In my life, There have been times when brothers, pastors, and church members have lovingly admonished and confronted me. And to admit it was hard to hear, calling me out on my sin, letting me know, Joshua, you are tripping big time and in this way. And as hard as it was for me to hear, I knew without a shadow of a doubt that those brothers loved Jesus And those brothers loved me. And they cared for my walk with Christ to call me out and exhort me to turn from my sin and show my love for Jesus by my repentance. So it is a loving thing that we are to do as God's people. Paul goes on. He says, comfort the discouraged. Now, these are those who are grieving, whether they experience some sort of loss of a loved one, persecution for the, on account of Christ, suffering with some sort of illness, or just struggling. And the temptation is for us to evaluate and bash them, to point our finger at them. But instead, Paul tells us to wrap a loving arm around them, to console them, to sit with them in their grief in their discouragement and to remind them of the gospel of Jesus Christ, who Jesus is and what he has done for us. 
to have them fix their eyes upon Christ. Beloved, we are to reflect the compassion of our Savior where Scripture says, He will not break a bruised reed and he will not put out a smoldering wick. Paul says that he goes on to say that we are to help the weak. Now, the weak here could be those who are weak in the faith, either caught, they can be caught in some sort of transgression or physically weak. And the response is to hold them up and carry them. If admonishing is the most uncomfortable, helping is the most inconvenient. Because it requires for us to give up the precious commodity of time. We're commanded to do this that we may strengthen and serve our fellow brothers and sisters in the Lord. Beloved, all of these responses exude care for one another. And regardless of the situation, Paul exhorts us to be patient with everyone. Patience is necessary. It is long-suffering, one of the fruit of the Spirit. And we can do this as we remember our very own shortcomings and the fact that God has been and is still being patient with us. We are constantly failing, and he is constantly forgiving, sustaining, and upholding. We can do this as we remember that no one's sanctification in this life is complete. All of us are a work in progress. Now, it is normal as a church to have people in all three of these seasons because life is hard. The flesh is real. And we can so easily be ensnared in sin. The reality is all of us would find ourselves in one of these categories some point in our Christian walk. And it's normal because the church is not an expo of the elite, the elite, but instead the church is a hospital for sinners. Beloved, we are simultaneously patients being ministered to and physician assistants doing the administering. We are giving the gospel of Jesus Christ, all for the purpose that all of us may grow in the likeness of Jesus. If we're going to do this well, beloved, it requires that we pray fervently. Because it requires for us to be courageous and compassionate. It also demands that we know the body. That we actually take an interest in one another and that we actually open up to each other. Because we can only minister effectively as we know one another personally. So the question to consider is how are you doing and deliberately caring for the body. Being intentional to warn those who are idle, comfort the discouraged, and help the weak. Do you know the body? How are you doing in pursuing the saints in this way? Look at verse 15. Paul says, see to it that no one repays evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good for one another and for all. Beloved, we live in a present evil age when we will be sinned against, whether it's by unbelievers or fellow members. The Thessalonians, they were oppressed by the people in Thessalonica, unbelievers in particular. They were oppressed because of their faith in Jesus, being persecuted, and we will experience the same on account of Christ. And the temptation will be retaliation, to give them a piece of our minds. 
But Paul exhorts us to go another route. He says, see to it that no one repays evil for evil to anyone. But we are to care about how each other respond when sinned against. We're to not instigate. We're to not say, man, if that was me, I would. But instead, we are to help one another resist the flesh. Because we have been made new in Christ. Paul is encouraging us to reflect our chief shepherd. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 2 to 23 says this, When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that having died to sin, we might live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Our Savior is our example. Just as he entrusted himself to God, so too are we. Knowing that God saw the actions, he saw the motives, and that he will judge in his timing. And so we're to instead pursue what is good. Seek to serve and care, seek to serve those who sin against us in these ways. As we desire justice and await for it, we don't pursue retaliation. For we know that vengeance is the Lord's. Romans 12 says that vengeance is mine and I will repay. He said, but instead, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in doing so, you will heap fiery coals on his head. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. Beloved, if we're going to pursue what is good always, we need revelation. We need God's word. For the God who is good has revealed in his word what is good. And we know that this is hard to do this on our own because the flesh is real. But we don't have to try to do it on our own. God has given us everything we need. He has freed us from sin's dominion. He has given us his spirit. He has given us his word. And he has given us his people. May we utilize all of God's resources that we may obey him in this. Beloved, Paul exhorts us to care well, to instruct, to aim to please the Lord according to how he has spoken in his word. We are to reflect the one who bore our sins for our salvation. If you're visiting us this morning and you are not a Christian, friends, I am glad that you are here. The main takeaway that I have for you is to trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. Doing all these other things apart from Christ will get you nowhere. You need Jesus. The reality is, friends, you have wronged people just as we have. You have done evil. In fact, you are a perpetrator of of evil because it was yours and my sin that nailed Jesus to the cross. As the Son of God died for the sins of his people and rose from the grave. Jesus pursued our good through his death and resurrection. And friends, he offers you the greatest good, forgiveness of sins, eternal life, salvation found in Jesus. And the way to receive that is by turning from your rebellion and trusting in him alone to save you. I would implore you this very day, 
receive the greatest good that Jesus offers. It is himself. It is salvation. Beloved, God has made us a family, and he exhorts us to love and care for one another. May we live this out by his grace, for his glory. Beloved, may our life together as a church be so distinct that it testifies that God has sent his son. May we walk in unity and genuinely care for one another. Let's pray.